Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired sergeant from Manhattan North Homicide Squad. I did 27 years, and with me, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm very excited to have Tommy on board tonight to really dig into the mob cops. This is going to be an amazing show, and also with us tonight is a special guest. We've, he's a, actually a frequent flyer. We love having him on so much, he keeps coming back. And we got retired NYPD first grade detective and organized crime expert, Tommy Dates. How are you tonight, Tommy? Doing good, good. Good evening, everybody. It's uh, it's great to have you on again. So, you know, folks, before we um, get we dig deep into this, uh, we're going to just play the police off the cuff song. And I had to, we have the new trailer, and I get hit with a copyright thing for the music, even though we paid for it. So, this is the trials and tribulations of uh of using youtube but we're gonna play the police off the cuff song till we get this straightened out it's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of new york crime fast and hectic they got some stories and some jokes even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Folks, welcome back to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. When you think of the most corrupt cops in the history of the New York City Police Department, most people now think of Michael Dowd, you know, from that documentary, The 7-5. However, I think that he pales in comparison to Luis Ippolito and Stephen Caracapo, who are actually doing murders for the mafia. Uh, Phil Grimaldi is going to give us a little timeline about their sort of uh, criminal their criminal run with the NYPD, and I'll call it a criminal run because they certainly weren't cops. And then we're going to get deep into this with Tommy Dades, who happens to be an organized crime expert. Philly. On Wednesday, March 9, 2005, Louis Ippolito and Stephen Caracapo were arrested at their homes in Las Vegas, Nevada. They were charged on a 79-count indictment by the DEA, the FBI, and the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. They were charged with eight murders as well as numerous other crimes, all related to the Lucchese and Gambino crime families of the New York Mafia. Who are these two men? Were they contract killers for the mob? Were they made members of an organized crime family? No, as it turns out, that during their life of crime, they were actually members of another family, the NYPD family. Here is a quote on the day of their arrest from Pasquale D'Amoro, the assistant director of the New York FBI office. These weren't two good cops, referring to Impolito and Caracapa, that had gone bad. These were two bad guys who somehow became cops. How did they slip through the cracks and get onto the NYPD and commit multiple murders and numerous other crimes. That's what we are going to dissect tonight with Tommy Dades. You know, guys, one of the things that I don't think that all of our listeners understand is that when you go on a police department, they do a pretty thorough 
background investigation on you. And little things can get you disqualified. Uh, Louis uh, Ippolito and Stephen Caracappa both came on the job in 1969. Now, historically, you got to realize what was going on in the city and in the country back then. It was the ending or getting close to the end of the Vietnam War. There was all kinds of student protests. And there was all kinds of riots going on in New York City. So as a result, they sped through the investigations on a lot of the cops that came on the job back in 1969. And that might explain somehow how Louis Ippolito and Stephen Caracappa sort of slipped through the cracks and were hired as NYPD police officers. Uh, Tommy, any comment on that? Um, I'm sure there were some great cops that came out of 69 class, but uh, as you said, um, back then there was a lot of race riots going on. A lot of bad things were happening in New York. Guys were getting, you know, I think the 69 class, you know, didn't even finish the class. They were just thrown out in the street with guns and shields halfway through. And they did slip up on a lot of, you know, let a lot of things slide or didn't catch a lot of things on guys that had some kind of a criminal history that would have showed there was a tendency for them to uh, turn bad. You know, uh, Louis Ippolito had at least three members of his family were made guys in the mafia. And that, even though he apparently wasn't, that is enough to disqualify you today. You, I don't think you would ever get on the police department now if you have that family history. And it's understandable. And he had sort of an alliance or a, a love for the mafia. He had this, he wrote a book called uh, Mafia Cop. And there it is right there. That was actually after um, he retired. But he showed this affinity and he spoke about how the mob had such integrity and family values and, and how they stood for something, omerta and all this other stuff. So clearly he had this uh, drilled into him from the time he was a young kid. And I think he respected the mob more than he did the police department. That that's a great point, Billy. And uh, you know, I think that that quote by that uh, the assistant director of the NYPD, uh, I'm sorry, of the FBI, on the day of their arrest, where he says that these weren't two good good cops that had gone bad. These were two bad guys that just happened to become cops. And you know, uh, the scandal that uh, erupted from this, I don't think it was so recognized as some of the other scandals, uh, specifically by the NYPD. Like, for instance, Frank Serpico. Frank Serpico was a corrupt narcotics cop, or he exposed corruption, and they had the NAP Commission following that. And to this day, people talk about that as uh, such a uh, you know tremendous corruption scandal within the NYPD. However, you had two guys that turned turned out to be just about contract killers for the mob. And uh, I know back in 69 is when they came on to the police force. Tommy, you want to give us a little uh, background on that? Is that what we track back to uh, Impolito and Caracappa? We track back to them uh, going on the job, coming on the job in 1969. Um, it's unknown whether they ever knew each other prior to that. I can't tell you yes or no. Um, I don't think anybody you know, that investigated the case could tell you that. Um, Tommy, I read in a New York, New York Times article that uh, Eppolito lied on his investigation, his background investigation about being related to members of organized crime. Is that true? Do we know that for fact? That's an accurate statement. And Caracappa, um, listen, we all were younger, grew up in a neighborhood. 
we all, none of, you know, I certainly wasn't an angel as a kid, you know, um, but Car- but Caracappa, um, he just didn't, wasn't just mischievous stuff that he did. He was actually involved in, you know, commercial burglaries of warehouses with trucks, you know, and storing major stolen property, you know, and got collared for it. And, uh, you know, somehow, you know, somehow, it, you know, the felony got reduced to a misdemeanor and whatever. But, you know, he, he had larceny, you know, major larceny in his heart. He was a Vietnam veteran, so I'll give him his credit there. But uh, why he didn't keep uh, the honor and the oaths he took in the police department the way he did in the military, I, I really don't know. You know, when they got involved in, uh, in you know, I guess it didn't start off them doing hits or them doing contracts. What they were doing was selling information to the market. I don't know. I, I mean, you know, I know I don't want to jump off track, but uh, they met in 1979, the Brooklyn North Robbery Squad. And, uh, you know, that's where they, they that's where we can, we can positively state where they work together. You know, but um, the picture of the two of them from uh, Epolito's book is that's, that, that's, that's from the six. I think that's the six two squad that picture was taken. In. Six two. Yes. Not that they were working together. I just think that uh, I think that picture was in the six two squad room. I believe. Oh, I thought it was. I thought it was the robber squad. Okay. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm just. I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but we do know that in '79 they were assigned to the same uh, office, the Brooklyn uh, Robbery Squad. They worked together. I know for a fact that Caracappa went to a boss in the robbery squad and asked to be, you know, taken. He was partnered with Epolito and asked to not work with the guy and have another partner. And the boss replied to him, like, give me a month or two, see how it works out, and then come back to me. If it don't work out, I'll put you with somebody else. I don't know if that was just a ruse on his part. You know what I mean? Nobody really knows the truth to that. It, it would be kind of hard to believe that you don't like someone and you go to a boss, I don't want to work with him. And there's no doubt that somewhere between 79 and 83, they weren't just running license plates. They were doing a lot more than that based on other things that happened and Philly will bring it up in 1983. So, so, so you think, Tom, that that could have been a ploy or you think it could? I mean, it, you know, like you go, you want to get away from a guy that you just meet and then, you know, within some very short period of time, like you guys are committing major crimes together. It's it, that's the, that's the part that not nobody ever found out. And, you know, it always boggled my mind trying to figure out how, how they, you know, I don't know, believe they knew each other when they were younger. I don't believe that. So, I'm going to hypothesize a little bit, but so it sounds like there's a possibility that they could have been committing illegal activities before uh, this meeting in 1979, and maybe because of suspicion that may have arose, they may have come up with that ruse. Oh, I don't want to work with them, you know, to show that they weren't, you know, way, uh, tied at the hip, you know, connected at the hip. Yeah, I don't think they were doing anything really bad in the robbery squad. You know what I mean? I think all of that takes place afterwards, my opinion. Okay. Um, and they definitely were into some serious stuff. After that. Tommy, let me just get back to um, Epolito's history. His father was a Gambino family soldier known as Fat the Gangster, an uncle known as Jimmy the Clam, a grandfather and a cousin were made men too. By age 10, Lewis was joining his father on his bookmaking rounds. 
So obviously coming from a background like that, we all know the police department and how paranoid they are about anyone coming on the job with any kind of criminal history or criminal background. And today you would definitely be disqualified for that, What, no matter where you came from. But uh, back then, maybe it was because of the 1969 class where they got a little more lenient or somehow. And look, I don't buy he lied. That, that's that's where the, why there's investigators. You can lie, but investigators find something out. They can confront you with your lies. Well, I mean, Eppolito's uncle and cousin, you know, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Sr. was involved with, you know, Nino Gaggi. That's who ends up killing them. One of the guys who ends up killing them. And Nino Gaggi was the one who was overseeing Roy DeMeo and, and the whole Gemini Lounge. So you're talking about some really bad people. And, you know, uh, he had... He, he had the ability to have conversations, uh, Jimmy Sr., with Paul Castellano. That's what got him killed because he put in a beef on, on uh, Louis' uncle put a beef, a beef in on Nino Gaggi, and Castellano sided with Nino, and Nino, Roy DeMeo, uh, Jimmy Jr., Jimmy Sr., in the Carnival Parkway, and uh, DeMeo and, and Gaggi killed the both of them. You know, let's talk about also, though, from a police point of view, how damaging it is when cops are selling inside information to criminals. How did I think of how that puts other cops in danger, how it puts the public in danger. And it's just, it's the worst kind of uh, traitor being a traitor there is. You know, listen, I'm no fan of internal affairs and I'm no internal affairs cop. Uh, I know that people had a problem with what I was involved in with other investigators. Uh, if they really dig into their heart and understand what these guys did, they betrayed a lot of cops who, especially the position that uh, Kara Kappa ended up with, he was the pinnacle point man in the major case squad for organized crime. So he had access to guys that trusted him in all the agencies, um, all guys that were involved in organized crime investigations. So he was like almost, a, you know, a, a point guy that was getting, he knew where the bugs were, he knew what wiretaps were going, he knew where informants were. People trusted him. And he was get, giving that information out. Not only, you know, you got to look at it another way. From someone like me who's experienced people, you know, cause problems for me and my family, um, you know, where they put me in danger, uh, they gave information. Thank God it was the wrong address. And thank God they never saw him. And I knew him personally. Charlie Rose was an amazing prosecutor in the Eastern District. He actually prosecuted, tried to prosecute Peso and, you know, uh, was involved in, in, in uh, breaking Queso's chops. Uh, he did a lot of organized crime cases. He was a whiz. And they gave him an address, but they gave him the address of the commentator, Charlie Rose, not Charlie Rose, the prosecutor. So every cop out there or whatever rank you are or whatever agency you come from, if you think that it was the wrong thing to do to lock them up, you got to remember something. If Queso gave these guys, you know, 20, 30,000, $10,000 for your address to kill you, they were giving it to him. So that's the kind of guys you were dealing with. You know, they were traders. You know, for what they did, if you were in the military, you'd be called treason, you'd be shot to death. So they gave up. It wasn't just the murders that they also 
you know, gave up. They compromised hundreds of cases of guys that worked very hard on them. And they were, you know, they're supposed to be the good guys. And not only were they out there doing bad guys' work, but they were also hurting guys that trusted them. So there was no loyalty there whatsoever, you know, for anybody. It was all about money. And with Epolito, Caracapa kept a very low profile, even though I heard that he was like, a, you know, like to go out to eat, and would pick up major tabs where people wondered where he was getting the money to pay for these enormous restaurant bills. Um, he dressed well, which is not a crime, but, uh, you know, lived a little bit above his means. But Epolito loved it, you know what I mean? Like he, you know, I was in his company twice at a social event and I didn't know anything about him and I couldn't stomach his guts looking at him. His, his, you know, arrogance, the way he acted, you know, the way he dressed, you know. He was like a circus clown, Tommy, wasn't he? He thought he was a tough guy and he ended up going in a smoker is what they call these grudge matches in the police department, you know, outside of the boxing team. But I mean, when we run a boxing team, we work, we did smokers too, but, uh, he went in there in the ring and uh, an ambulance had to take him away. So he wasn't such a tough guy as he thought he was. You know what, Tommy? I, I want to go back a little bit to 1983. Uh, we know that he eventually wound up, the two of them eventually wound up on the payroll of uh, Anthony Gaspipe Queso, a Lucchese crime family boss. But uh, let's make the connection. In 1983, can you take us back to then? What? How did the connection start where they eventually would lead up to and become part of the payroll of Anthony Gaspipe Queso. 1983, Bert Kaplan gets sent to prison. Bert Kaplan was an associate of Christy Tick, who was in the administration of uh, Lucchese crime family and hung out at the 19th hole on 86th and 14th across the street from Scopacci's funeral home. Um, That's Brooklyn, New York, by the way. At the time that... uh, at the time that they were in jail, Christy Tick was still in power and Bert was under Christy Tick. He, Bert was a major earner, you know, in all kinds of the garment industry, uh, major, major pot supplier, you know, sold to all the major pot dealers. And from what I heard, you know, uh, he had the best pot in, in, in New York. Um, and I've heard that from him, you know, he said that, and I've heard that from guys that bought pounds and pounds from him that made fortune. Um, he was under Christy Tick's, you know, umbrella. And when the commission case took place in 1984, Christy Tick gave, sent Kaplan to Queso. And that's how Kaplan ended up with Queso because Christy Tick got locked up. He took so, was going to go to jail, and so he decided to uh, turn uh, Kaplan on to Queso. Bert was a big earner, you know what I'm saying? Big money, involved in a lot of different, you know, a lot of different things with cash, and uh, a very big earner. Um, Is that something that happens quite often in organized crime, Tom? Where yeah, I mean, if you're going away, if you're going away, even if you're even if you're a captain and you're going away. And you got a crew under you, made guys and associates. Somebody's got to take the reins of the guys that are still out there. You know what I mean? So someone will be appointed. I believe Christy Tick, you know, personally, you know, told Queso to take Kaplan. I believe, you know, um, that he told him, you know, you watch this guy because he wasn't somebody that could ever gotten straightened out. He was a very deep associate, very big money maker. So many things in 
and with queso like cars and things like that were in were in uh Bert's name, you know, the car the queso is driving, things like that. Um so Cap uh Kaplan's in prison and he meets uh Louis Epolito's cousin Frank Santoro in prison. And they become friendly and Santoro's a uh an associate of the Lucchese crime family. And uh however the conversation comes up, he says if you ever need anything my cousin and his partner are detectives and they will do anything that you want and the word anything to me meant anything um and when they were asked to do murder right after that they did so i kind of believe somewhere between 79 and 83 they probably did commit violent crimes that just we don't know about you know um because we do know that they probably did more then we went after them for that we find out later on that so oh, it's it sounds like they put themselves out there between 79 and 83 in that four year period they were putting themselves out there that they were ready to do anything for money basically well, obviously we're doing things already who they were doing or yeah. i couldn't tell you what they did i couldn't tell you i don't think anybody you know really around you know knows you know these are unanswered questions um but uh, that's how that's how the relationship starts. So when when uh, they get out of jail, uh, Kaplan and Santoro, um, Santoro is the go-between until he gets killed. Between he like he's the guy that is dealing with Kaplan, and he's dealing with Epolito. Santoro will deal with Epolito, Caracapa, and also Kaplan. Once and then eventually, you know, he gets killed with Carmine, um, uh, Carmine Verriali on Bath Avenue. Uh, so when he gets killed, that relationship now there's no in between. And I heard that Epolito actually had the balls to go to Kaplan and try to sell himself and say, like, we continue this relationship. Uh, Joe Ponzi would be a little bit more familiar with exactly what happened with this. He was uh, the main guy debriefing Bert. He flipped Bert. Um, but Bert didn't like Ippolito. And then Kaplan approached him. And he liked Kaplan. He liked Car Kaplan, approached uh, Kaplan. And that's how the relationship continued. To the point that Kaplan even testified, he knew the name of Caracappa's cat, he knew the layout of Caracappa's apartment, you know, and he just thought that Ippolito was a buffoon, you know. But he- you know, Tommy, uh, in 1984, Ippolito came under suspicion when the authorities raided the New Jersey home of Rosario Gambino. Listen, I know that story intimately. I read the tri- I read the trial room, you know, transcripts. I read the internal affairs reports. He was guilty as sin. I mean. Guilty as sin, you know, there were... Well, t- Tommy, tell the audience what he did. What he did was he played like he... I'm not going to mention names of anybody, but he played He played like he was the... Uh, like in charge of organized crime cases in the 6-2 squad, which is a lie. He went to the intelligence division and supposedly said he was there with a complainant, but there was no complainant that ever signed in and said that there was something he needed to do related to a case that he had going on in the 6-2 and that he was in charge of all organized crime cases in the 6-2 and obtained the folder 
from the intelligence division, from a detective who trusted him, on Rosario Gambino. And the FBI does a search warrant on Rosario Gambino's house in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And in the ceiling, they find that folder. They send it, I guess, to Quantico, and they come up with fingerprints. But And they're also able to prove that it came from the 6-2 copy machine. And that's where Apolito worked. The thing is, and Tommy, that's very strong evidence because the image is still on the machine. It's very strong. It's very yeah. strong evidence. The thing is that um, he claimed what happened was there were copies of the report in the ceiling. So the copies had fingerprints from the cop from the originals. So the the advocate in the in the trial room ruled in favor of him because. They said that because they were copies of fingerprints, they weren't his actual fingerprints like he touched those papers. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It In other words, they were able to raise the fingerprint off of the copy. Off the copy from the copy. From right, the right. But that's pretty powerful. I mean, the, the copy <laughs> coming from the machine in the 6-2, he took the file out from the guy in the intelligence division. It's not a stretch there. That's pretty <laughs> solid evidence. I've seen other folders, and I won't mention those names either, of guys that were dear friends of mine that I compared those folders to just to see because I knew what happened to the outcome of one of one of my dear friends who may, may rest in peace. Um, it wasn't even close in, in comparison, you know. And we know the trial rooms at Kangaroo Court, and my friend got fired for something that, I don't even know what he got fired for. And he was as innocent as the day is long. And uh, Epolito beat the case. And in and you know, it was a famous prosecutor named Yu Mo. Who Yu was Mo a, was the trial room commissioner at the time. Right. Yes. And uh, it was the police commissioner. And he actually, uh, I know that uh, Chief of Detectives Nicastro had gone up to him and said, you really screwed this up. I guilty as hell. I called, it's a crazy story, but... He mentions, Bolito mentions Nicastro in his book, and he and he talked. I I remember Nicastro as a rookie cop, and he just walked down the street, and you know he scared you. You know he just he had, had a presence. You're yeah, right. He had a presence, Nicastro. Yeah. You know, and uh, I remember being in uniform and seeing him walk down to a bank robbery, and you just he just had authority written all over. Him, you know, and Bolito claims that he put his finger in his chest and he, you know, said all kinds of things and threatened them or whatever. So I wasn't looking to get Nicastro involved in the case. I was just looking to pick his brain, you know, this is after he's retired for a long time. And I remember calling Nicastro and uh, I call him up and he says, listen to me, unless you get somebody with three stars or more to call me to vouch for you, I won't talk to you. And he hangs up on me. And I won't mention who calls for me, but somebody at that level calls up, vouches for me. And I call him back and he was very, you know, he was a gentleman, the Castro. And the first words out of his mouth, you know, and he was a very well-respected chief of detectives, Richard Nicastro. And the first words out of his mouth is, I hope, and, and I'm sorry I'm going to be vulgar, but this is what he told me. I hope you're calling me because you're going to lock that fat fuck up. That's what he told me. No love lost there, huh, Tom? No love lost there, no. 
You know, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. And if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, uh, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And you see the folks with the green font in the chat. That's from our YouTube family, which we have five different levels. So you can support us that way. These are fa fascinating guests we've had on. We've had been doing a lot of work lately. We were on Jimmy Calandra's show last night. Uh, really, we call that cross-pollination. Jimmy's a great guy. Good He's man. got a great, great podcast. And I really enjoy, uh, in my career working in Manhattan North uh, in the Homicide Squad, we didn't really come across uh, wise guys. Uh, we had organized crime, but it was different. It was uh, Dominican organized crime, black organized crime, and that, that's what was in Manhattan North. So this is a little foreign to me to uh, to talk about you know the mafia and wise guys, but uh, a criminal is a criminal. Absolutely, absolutely, Billy. Tommy, listen, real quick. I know that we were just on about Rosario Gambino about that file. Now he went into the intelligence division, Eppolito uh, uh, and Louis Eppolito, and he told the investigator there that he was in charge of organized crime cases within the six two precinct. That was actually debunked, correct? That wasn't true. It was a lie. Okay, that was a lie. So all of these things, I mean, how he slid through the cracks on that one is really pretty amazing. And he, had, he had a rabbi somewhere because not, you know, 84, he gets jammed up. 86, I believe he's exonerated. And somewhere, like in the next year or two, he gets promoted to second grade. So, you know, that would that would never, ever, if you have anything that is like a corruption thing, you will I, never get promoted. I, I think about this. He's in the 6-2 squad when that happens, right? And back in those days, the 6-3 was affiliated with a lot of organized crime figures, too. Your 6-3 in Canarsie was... Castle lived in the 6-3. And, and, I mean, it was a major, it was a Gambino, it was Lucchese, there were a lot of guys. Amongst there. other guys, but I'm just saying, oh, Castle God. lived in the 6-3. Send them from the 6-2 to the 6-3. So, you know, you talk about the, the hens watching, you know, the, the, the what do you call it? The wolf watching the, the hen fox house. fox is watching the hen house. You know I mean? So, and he gets promoted on top of it. I mean, imagine those allegations, you beat it, and then, like, pretty quickly you get promoted to second grade. So, I, I don't know. I have Tom, no I got to tell you a personal story from around 83. I knew someone that had a used car lot, and... They had uh, other people, you know, car dealers, sometimes they take other deals and they'll put cars on their lot. So he he was just starting out. He had a car dealer to put a couple of cars on his lot. And the, and the car dealer told him, listen, few of these are tag jobs. So the guy went berserk. He says, listen, I'm brand new in this business. I don't want no tag jobs on my lot. He's like, no, no, don't worry about it. My mother's boyfriend, he's the detective. He could take care of it, blah, blah, blah. P.S. He says, listen, get the cars off the lot by tomorrow morning or I'm putting them out in the street. The next morning he goes to open a lot. Who's sitting in a... Unmarked radio car, a detective car, Louis Apolito, gets out, says, can I talk to you for a minute? He says, yeah, sure. What's the matter? He thinks he's getting locked up for these stolen cars. He goes inside the trailer with him and he says, listen, don't worry about those cars. That kid, he's a good kid, blah, blah, blah. I got eyes on him. Says, listen, I don't care what you got eyes on. I don't want the auto squad up my ass. He turned around and said, listen, don't worry about the auto squad. I could take care of them. He insisted they got the cars taken off. But the point is, is that I believe that was 1983. He was for sale in the neighborhood then. Now, that's a small thing. That's not really contract killing. Now, look, Tommy, earlier you said you were no angel as a kid. I was no angel. We all had our little things here and there. We weren't out 
committing contract murders or, or doing stickups. So, I mean, this is this guy was for sale. It's clear. It's it, it's obvious. I mean, that's from uh, you know 1983 within Gravesend. I would say in that area, Bensonhurst. So, and it was like very clear. Everybody knew he was for sale. This detective was for sale. So, you now, know, okay. I think both got away with it for, you know, a, a long period of time, you know, and the FBI, when, when Queso, you know, well, I won't go ahead. I want to go ahead of ourselves. You know, one of the things, Tommy, that uh, everyone I think would want to know, and we're from the police department, so we know how it works, but where was IAB on this? You know, where was IAB on Michael Dowd? You know, uh, you know, and we can. She don't want me. To, you don't want me. To no, no. But I'm just saying. I, I want to. This is almost rhetorically. I'm saying this is because Michael Dowd was a dirty piece of shit, and he was doing all kinds of dirty gangster shit, and he was really an alcoholic and a drug addict. Besides being a gangster, FIAU, who's on him all along, was a great guy, and nobody seemed from the documentary. You get the impression that nobody really wanted to help him. You know. But the documentary it was embarrassing because it was like this guy's really getting away with all this stuff, and he's a cop. He's not even a detective; he's a police officer on patrol. I think they got doing... him for about eight years. But, but you know, and who ultimately Suffolk County Police caught him, not our Internal Affairs Division. But they'll give you charges and specs and take days from you for an extra scoop of ice cream, though. right? Yeah, yeah and white yeah. socks. It's ridiculous. And then, so to bring this full circle. Ippolito and Caracappa, they're committing major, well, they're doing murders, but they're also doing things that should I, raise I, the eyebrows of internal affairs. my eyebrows. I, I saw, I think it was four reports from internal affairs that people were just stating that Ippolito and Caracappa wanted to sell information to them, you know, like DD5s, whatever it was. I don't remember exactly. Um, but I had gotten some folders that I was able to obtain. Because Internal Affairs had zero to do with the investigation on Caracappa and Epolito. They weren't notified about it. And they, you know, they were never told a thing about it. They were never brought into the loop on purpose. Um I read these reports and they stated that uh they we're trying to shake people down. For there were four different reports that they were accused of, of like trying to sell something for something. The thing about it is, is that they weren't after the robbery squad. They didn't work together. Epolito was in the six two and the six three. Caracappa was in the eight four, and then went to major case. So they had no, you know, on four different occasions, and that's just four that I was able to read, they're accused of trying to shake somebody down for money, for information, but yet, you know, what are they doing together? You know? Tommy, I think that was intentional. That was so, I think that was probably Caracappa. Keep it separate. We can't work together because if uh, something comes up, it'll be too easy to put it together. Oh, they, they didn't work together, but, it, but they... Are accused of wrongdoing together. Oh, I'm sure that they were working outside the job together. But no, I'm talking well, about no. what I'm saying is those reports, those complaints to IAD were that were reports on both of them when they weren't in the same command. Right. That's what I'm saying. They they were separate in, in the police department, but, but they, they were out doing criminal activity together. Yeah, no, hundred percent, but you absolutely I mean, that, that as a 
any investigator should raise an eyebrow, like one complaint, maybe, but four, you know, and that's right, right. I get my hands on. Right, right. And, and I think that I, I really believe from knowing, you know, about this case, that was probably done intentional on their part because it would raise less suspicion. Because if somebody is saying, you know, two guys, those two guys, it's easy to split them up and then, you know, make things hard for them and put the spotlight on them. So, but if it sounds so ridiculous. I know some investigators who, who forgot more than I'll ever know, you know, that uh, talk about experts in organized crime. They were, they knew everything. They testified at every mob trial, you know, uh, major mob trial in New York City. And they trusted Karakap. And, you know, they beat themselves up after all of this because they gave, you know, not that's another detective, you know, calling for information. And, you know, it's like me and you work, you know, you calling me, Tommy, you know, you know about A, B, C, and D. And yeah, Philly Shaw, you know what I mean? So that's how it was. But and think about this, Tommy, if that uh, detective that you're talking about or that investigator trusted Caracappa, had he been tied at the hip with Impolito, we may not have trusted him. He might have said, what are you doing with this clown? So that being separate probably worked to their advantage. Caracappa was the was the deadliest of the two. And at the beginning, not everybody believed that until, of course, Bert came in, you know, and filled in the blanks. But he was he was the. You know, and he did a pretty good job on 60 Minutes trying to convince people of his innocence. But he was, he was the deadliest of the two, you know. Well, you we know, uh, Louis Ippolito was a former bodybuilder. He was a big guy. And his book, he claims to be one of the high, most highly decorated uh, cops in NYPD history, which is absolute total bullshit. He's not even close. But uh, so he was he, he had a lot of bluster. You know, he was big, he was uh, he was intimidating, and of course he had that mob. Uh, that he, was mob he was the most arrogant guy I ever met. You know, I told you I was in his presence twice at a social event, Christmas time. Didn't know him, didn't talk to him, just looked at him and was like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, he had a white tie on, a black shirt, like 9,000 rings on, and the way he was talking, and just loud and... I remember Chief Matter Chief Matarasso used to say, "Don't you ever wear a black shirt in front of me." <laughs> it was hey, like, Tom, let me ask you a question, Tom. Now I'm going to make a stretch here, and I'm going to say that these guys came on the job not to be cops; they came on to be criminals. Same thing with Michael Dowd. What's your opinion of that, Tim? Tom? I mean, I mean, just think about it. As as a detective working in a squad room, okay, think about it. Think about pulling over a car. All right, me and you, Philly, we're, we're in the 6'8 together. And uh, we jump in the car, we pull a car over on a Bell Parkway, and me or you just, you know, put six bullets in a guy's head. We get back in, you know, the car from the squad, and we go back to the office with Chinese food, and we go watch TV. I mean, think about that. Like, who, who, who could do that? And these guys didn't just do it once. They did it many times. In one shape, form, or another, they either were there or delivered somebody to get killed or killed them or gave the information to have them killed and didn't think twice about it. Just bought a friggin' Winnebago and took off to Vegas. And if Kaplan dies, 
if you know we don't get if Ponzi don't get Kaplan when he does, he don't live much longer after that. Joe, wait, let me. Joe Ponzi is a chief investigator with the Brooklyn DA's office. involved. Explain he, who he is. Tom. Joe Ponzi. Um, his father was a legend. Um, his father was a Marine, uh, and, and, and he was in World War II. Ura. Saw combat. Uh, he was a homicide squad sergeant. He did 38 and a half years on the job. He's probably the most wisest man, wisdom-wise, I ever met in my life. God rest his soul. I loved him to death. I would not Great try. I would knock on I'd go to Joe's house, but I would knock on his door and never go see Joe and stay with him. Yeah. Um, Joe uh was a product from his father. And Joe Wait, Tom, wasn't his father in uh Iwo Jima? Yes. In World War II. He was a Marine in Earl War Emilio Ponzi. God rest his soul. What a great guy. Uh, he was in uh, World War II in the Marines. And he so, grew yeah. up in South Brooklyn. You know, Joe yeah. Ponce's father was a big towering guy. He was, you know, he was a street guy. You know what and I mean? And reti he retired as a sergeant from the Brooklyn South Homicide Squad. And uh, Joe, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Joe Ponzi's probably one of the classiest guys that I've ever met. Um, you know, I love him to death. He's one of my dearest friends. Uh he, oh, as the chief investigator, I mean, how many chief investigators go out and pull a guy out of a federal jail cell and try to flip him? And that's how into this Joe was. He, he and was Joe went there and, uh, and Kaplan told him he had enough business cards of different people that tried to flip him to cover his whole jail cell. And... Joe, you know, I'll let Joe tell that story one day. I wasn't there. I know what happened before, what happened during, what happened after, but it's not my story to tell. Um, Joe would be here. He's just a little under the weather, and hopefully we'll get Joe on sometime in the yes. future. But God bless you. Know, him, uh, Frank Marsha, he says we can go. He's from the chat. We can go way back in NYPD history and find corrupt cops and corrupt brass. The NYPD is so big. This kind of stuff can happen, and it's not uncommon. It happens in all police agencies. It's sad. Frank, believe, uh, I'm going to take exception to that because I don't believe this is the only time I've ever heard of cops doing hits for the mafia. I I, there's, there's corruption in every every organization, from the White House down to, uh, you know. The, Mayberry the RFD. Yeah, I mean, there's corruption everywhere. And if you don't believe that, then you're naive, you know, and – no matter what age you know agency you work for, you know IBM. There's there's corruption there. There's corruption everywhere. There are people that you know. Not everybody is a good person, you know. So, but in the NYPD, you know, I don't. I'm not saying that there wasn't other scandals. I'm not saying that uh, back in the old days that things were accepted. Whatever you know, taking a payoff from a construction company to pass a certain point on a Sunday. Guys were taking money and playing clothes, whatever. You're talking about taking money, you know, you're talking about things like that. These guys were killing people for organized crime. They'd have a cop killed if they could. They tried to have a federal prosecutor killed. They compromised every investigation you could think of. You know, like nobody really understands the magnitude of what they did. They were indicted on 79 counts in a RICO case and convicted on all, and they were drug dealers on top of it. And they were convicted on all 79 counts. There wasn't one predicate act that they weren't found guilty on. You know, prosecutors, 
did a great job. You know, they really did. They did a great job. You know, we're going to go to a quick commercial and we'll come right back with Tommy Dades talking about Ippolito and Caracoppa, the uh, mafia cops. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray's a good friend of police off the cuff. Absolutely. You know, Tommy, one of the things I just want everyone to know that's watching this, especially even other cops, is that dirty, filthy cops like these two and Michael Dowd and other people, they make the job of being a cop 10 times harder. And I remember like when Dowd came out, how ashamed I was that someone like that was even on the NYPD. And when I, I when I heard of Caracappa and Epolito, I almost couldn't believe that this oh, most actually people, happened. Most people didn't. And, you know, uh, it was kept very under the radar. You know what I'm saying? The whole case was kept as close to the vest as possible. It was a need to know basis for a lot of reasons. But uh, when it came out, you know, I was like, to a lot of guys, I was like the plague, you know. Wait, wait, I got I got to tell a quick story because initially the FBI looked at this. There was a story in the newspaper, but then Queso was found to be incredible and they didn't use him. Now, when that story hit the paper, I worked with a lot of old timers that were from. The I class it, believe it. Say again. I saw that newspaper. I remember where I was when I saw it and I didn't believe it. Right. And and the, the word in Brooklyn South was, are they fucking crazy? These guys could never do such thing. Nobody believed it. And then fast forward to when this whole case went down. And I don't want to go too far past where we are right now. But Tommy, a lot of people when they were arrested said, oh, these guys should have left alone. This and, that. and I defended you and I've told you about it. But but and this is a big but. After the trial, when people read the day-to-day goings-on in the trial, a lot of people came to me and said, you know what? Those guys, meaning you, Joe, Mike Vecchione, did the right thing. They were fucking murderers, and I use that term for a reason. That's what they were, and they got what they deserved. I never looked, at it. I never looked at it as a corruption case. I looked at it as a mob case. Right, know? exactly. And why we were working it. That's what we did. We did mob cases. and. I wasn't looking at them as two retired detectives. I was looking at them as two associates of Anthony Gaspipe Queso and Burke Happen, you know? And if you look at it that way, you know, I sleep well at night. I don't have any regrets, you know, of, of the case at all. Uh, I know I made some enemies along the way doing it and really could give a fuck less. And in my heart, you know, one day I got I got an answer to a higher authority and I gave closure to certain people that I stayed friends with throughout. Um, one of them, may she rest in peace with Betty Heidel, is the reason I got involved in the case. She's really the hero of this case. And, uh, you know, she was a woman who didn't know where to turn and had two sons killed and knew what her, one of her sons were. You know, didn't hold that back, but the fact that they were killed by detectives is what made us sick. 
And, Tommy, uh, I'm glad you brought up Anthony Gaspipe Queso because we know that eventually there was an introduction. In 1985, could you tell us about what happened that eventually led to the introduction of Impolito and Caracapa to Anthony Gaspipe Queso? There was, a, there was a gentleman by the name of Israel Greenwald. Um, you know, nothing bad against him. He was, you know, white collar kind of stuff that he was involved in. You know, he certainly didn't deserve to die what he was involved in, but uh, they believed that he was going to cooperate and uh, Queso wanted him dead. So uh, what happened was uh, Kaplan had mentioned to Queso, you know, that, listen, I got these two detectives. They'll do anything for us, you know, the piece of work, you know, information. And he's like, if they'll turn on their own, they'll turn on me. What do I need them for? You know? So, when Israel Greenwald, um, he's picked up on the highway by Caracap and Polito, and uh, he's brought to a garage, body shop, whatever it is, on um, Nostrum Avenue, owned by a guy named Franzone. And Nikki, uh, Frank Santoro's there with Franzone. They pull in with Greenwald. And Polito and Caracap, I'm not sure if Polito is outside by himself, or Caracap is with him, but basically one of them or both of them are playing chicky outside of the garage. And Santoro kills him. And once he's dead, Epolito and Caracap will leave. Franzone and Santoro bury the body in the garage under the concrete and reconcrete it. And the body's eventually recovered. Um, there's a missing person's put out on him and, you know, feel very bad for the family. Like I said, he didn't do anything to deserve to die. Um, so initially, Castle really didn't want to meet these guys. He didn't, he didn't trust want them. to meet them. But when they, when, when the plan to kill him, uh, you know, fails and he shot at and he's so desperate to find out, he finds out, you know, um, uh, that's we'll get into that later on of course he finds out one name and he's so desperate to find that individual so he could find out who else was in the car and if it was a sanctioned hit who was the one that was responsible for it and he was so desperate he said you know what because Ka Kaplan says, you know, they were involved in the, in the Greenwald murder. I was he, just going to bring that up, Tommy. Now they're like bona fide yeah. killers because so, Kaplan is telling them they they were involved in in, in abducting and killing uh, uh, Green, Israel Greenwald. They so went along with it and used them to get to pick up Jimmy Heidel, okay. and that's that's where Queso and them. Where, well, Greenwald was one of it, of course, but that was through Kaplan, and now. Um, uh, Jimmy Heidel is is now in the loop with, with them because they they kidnap him. So, so if they, anyone they, would, if anyone, uh, Tommy, if anyone would doubt that these two didn't know what they were doing in kidnapping someone, using their police powers to do so, and delivering the guy to get murdered, if someone they could kill Jimmy Heidel themselves, and they told Kaplan, "Tell Queso, we'll kill him." But Queso didn't want him. They, he didn't want him for just to kill him. He wanted he the info because he wanted to torture him and obtain information about everything. And Jimmy told him everything. Well, that was the scene on 60 Minutes when Queso 
with a smirk on his face said, I may have shot him 10 yeah. times, 12 he, times, 13 well, times. Yeah, but he Jackson, didn't talk to him, he says. I, I didn't talk yeah, to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a body in the street, so his mother could collect the life insurance policy, and his, and his body was buried and never recovered. Tommy, what, around what year was Jimmy Heidel killed? When did that hit go down on case? Yeah, over 86, he was killed. Okay, so that that's, yeah. So the eight, around 85 issues when uh, 85 86 is when they try to kill Queso? No, no, much sooner in 86. Eight, oh, 86. Yeah. Okay. I said 85 86. Now Queso was a bona fide not just a killer but a nutcase, right? Two months after two months after Jimmy gets killed in Christmas Day of 86, they kill Nicky Guido and it ain't even the right Nicky Guido, so they kill an innocent kid for nothing. Well, well, Tommy, before you say that, first of all, one of the things is that they killed the wrong kid because this knucklehead Caracapa gave them the wrong information that he pulled from department computers, yes. the wrong address, and he was directly involved with them killing the, the I wrong guy. Found that piece of paper, and Tommy unearthed that. And and it, it, I listen. Anybody could have found it, you know, and it was laying there, and. uh it was it had his name, his tax number on it, Caracapa. You know, he ran it. And it was the wrong date of birth of the real Nicky Guido. And that's that's when I knew we were that that was the first step in like really knowing we're gonna nail him, you know. In his sixty minutes interview, Tommy, uh the, the Ed Bradley asked him about that, and he goes, "Oh, if I ran it and my name is on it, there was a reason." He probably put some fictitious case he number put a down. Fictitious case on it. There'd be no, yeah. had no, there was no, there was no relative reason for him to have ran that name. And yeah, he I ran know. it. He ran it. Um, when he ran it, I think it was two weeks after he ran the name, the guy was dead. Yeah, that'll you know, make Tommy, sense. that the 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 security of like when you just for people that aren't in police work, the security of department computers even to this day, it's inspected by you know uh, precinct inspections. It's inspected by internal affairs, and they want to know why you ran certain information. Yeah, but it could still sneak, it could still slip through the cracks even today. I mean, that's if there's an investigation, you know, and 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 a reason for them to look for that. Printout. If nobody makes an allegation on why to look for that printout, you know that they're, they're not they're not going to find it. You know what I'm saying? If, if no one puts a complaint in or gives them a reason to run it, why would they look for it? You know how many times a day? I mean, back in the day when we were on, how many times a day? You know, I, I wasn't good with computers, so you know I'd have somebody use my tax number, and you know if I wanted to run a name, they knew how to do it because I wasn't a guy or called BCI. You know what I mean? Those days are over. But you know, one of the things now, and folks, so did when he's Tommy's using police jargon, DD five is is a complaint follow up. There's a system now, a computer system, a DD five computer system of all the complaint follow ups citywide. So if you run someone's name and another squad in the city has a case on or is looking for the same guy, you can pull up that case. I mean, computers one hundred one. But the police department, up until I most of our career. There was like it was. Uh, hit, they were hitting two rocks together in a cave to make a spark. You know, and that guy could be in a squad in, in another borough, and you'd never know it. You know, unless you had a wanted card out on him. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the 
you know, that was implemented like the FBI, the DEA, you know, every um, 302 and every six, what they call their DD5s, you know, internationally, you know, like if they question the guy in Iraq, you know, a guy in New York is going to have that information. You, you know what I'm trying to say? It'll like, pop up if they throw his name in. To read the report that was written in another country. So the police department came a long way that way, you know what I mean, uh, which makes work a lot easier. But, Tom, well, just listen. also think the security of it. If everyone had access to that, you could find out stuff that could get people killed. That That's written well, in GD5s. You know? Eric Kappa, you know, nobody really questioned him because he was the guy. He actually made up it was called it was from the major case squad it was uh called the you know organized crime homicide whatever and i have copies of both one was from 1980 to 1990 the other one was a revised edition really thin was 90 to 90 91 to 92 and they were all unsolved if you they went in by year order and there was a glossary in the front with all the names so they were all unsolved organized crime murders that were listed. So you went to the page and it would give you the 61 number. It would give you the case number. It would give you the, the precinct that it happened in, the time it happened, where it happened, the guy's name, the possible perps, a synopsis of who could have done it. You know, it was it was like an information. It was a good book. But there were a lot of murders in there that Captain Polito did, you know. So they were, he, they were chronologically putting down their own murders. I, I don't mean to laugh, but it, when you you're, you're laughing at a sad how sick it was. But yeah, some of their murders were in there, and um, some of their murder conspiracies were in there. So they know who did the murders and why it happened, even if they weren't a part of it. They had tried and were unsuccessful in killing the people like Bobby Borriello, Sammy Gravano, you know what I mean? Things like that. Um, so, it, you know, he was he was like the, the major information spot for organized crime throughout the police department. So when he called the FBI or the DEA or the U.S. Attorney's Office or the Southern Dish, whatever, you know, people spoke to him because he was the guy in charge of organized crime for the major case squad. And How about when guys called him? He would probably tip them off. Listen, that squad over there is looking at you guys. Well, they were telling that they, they compromised the you know every piece of information they got, they gave away. Like they didn't, you know, it was a whole scam, and they were getting paid major cash by case. So they were on a they were on a retainer. I think it was four thousand a month. Don't what the hell? I'm just in that area. They were on a retainer at four thousand a month, and then if they did a piece of work. One they got forty thousand. One they got like seventy thousand. You know, you know what I'm saying. So he bought a Winnebago with the money that he got, I believe, for killing Jimmy Heidel, for bringing Jimmy Heidel. Louis Abelito bought a forty thousand dollar Winnebago, and they even found the receipt to it that he bought it in cash. And where did he get forty thousand in cash? He was never able, you know, in court, never able to justify where that. Forty thousand came from. It came from Gaso. He had in his piggy bank. <laughs> yeah, what cop has forty thousand dollars cash hanging around? Uh, and that's forty thousand in what year? Like nineteen ninety? That was, that was like, 
you know, he bought the Winnebago in, in the 80s sometime, you know, I mean, late 80s. All right, even worse. It's absolutely absurd. It's crazy. He actually went on an anger management program. I don't know if you ever saw it on YouTube, but he signed up for an anger management program and he's, he's interviewed. This buffoon gets on there and talks about how tough he is and what a bad temper he has and how he abuses people and, you know, the violence he inflicts upon his prisoners. Like, it's a, it's a crazy interview, you know? And he just loved notoriety. He was in, you know, some B-movies. He was also in, you know, um, Goodfellas, uh, you know. Fat Andy. And he was also in uh, State of Grace. You know, he wanted to be, and everything he wanted to play in all these movies was a gangster. But was he in The Perfect Murder? No. <laughs> Only, Only good I, guys were in hey, there. Who's, who's this movie star here? There he is. Yeah. That's that's at the that's at a giant dinner and I had all the kids from Park Hill down there, me and Patty Russo and the band the Holyfield. <laughs> that's great. I mean, you know, it's it's almost hard to believe, just like you know, when we compare corruption, the Michael Dowds of this world, but it's hard to believe that two detectives were doing murders while on duty using their shield, using their positions as New York City detectives to work for the mafia. It's just almost, I mean, really, this should be a movie. If ever there was going to be a movie, this should be a movie. You know what? It's, it's, it's old news. I don't think people are really interested in the story anymore. I'm even bored of the story, to be honest with you. Um, but if you ever read Queso's 302s or Bert Kaplan's court testimony, I mean, you could publish those as books, you know, and in case those three debriefings, I think at least 200 pages of the 500 and something pages, um, did they find the right guy and kill him? You no, know, they killed uh, the wrong, they never found him. Guido, Nicky Guido ends up getting indicted in 1989 and uh, for the murder, for the attempted murder, and um, Queso gets to court and Plays dumb. I don't know who he is. Uncooperative complaining. So get charged. Who, who, who was it that went to court on it, Tom? Nicky Guido was indicted in 1989. And the sick part of it is when he gets indicted in 1989, the day he gets indicted, the day after, and the day after that, Caracapa runs his name two times. So, so the, the real Nicky Guido. The one who was supposed to be killed gets indicted for trying to kill Thank very much. Thanks. Again? Brian Brown, thanks for the 499 super chat. Always a great time when Tommy Dades is on. The man needs his own YouTube channel. God bless you and your I family. Keep telling him. Thank I you keep for telling good wishes. You know something? If he doesn't want to get his own YouTube channel, we'll just have him on <laughs> at least once a month. You know, that's what we're doing. And Jimmy Calandra, too. He's Honestly, a great guest. It's like, it's like being back in a squad room, you know, with the boss and my partner. And, you know, we're just talking about a case. You know, I'm home doing nothing. So, you know, this is my retirement, you know. And uh, You know, it's, Tommy, you know what's funny? When when we we cops talk, we, we go into that cop lingo talk, and we don't realize that not everyone listening understands what the hell we're saying, you know. Yeah. You know what it was? There was nothing like um, – you know, if there was a fresh homicide or whatever kind of a major case it was, it was 
it was great. Like when you had like seven, eight guys, the bosses and everybody behind a closed door in the squad room in the boss's office. And just, you know, you see when guys, you know, like everybody would come up with different views, different opinions. And, you know, the boss would say, okay, well, you know, sign like, you know, teams of guys, you know, team them up. And I use, we come up with all these different ideas on what to do. And everybody go out and follow up on it. And then you come back and you regroup and you do another to-do list. You know, it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, you, you work sometimes, you know, 30, 40, 45 hours straight, you know, not going home and cigarette smoke in the squad and coffees and, you know, donuts, you know, like it's stereotypical stuff, you know, and who's laughing. And it was, it was a, it was a good camaraderie. And I think it was, you know, you know, I, wa I watch Barney Miller, and I don't think anything closer to being a, a detective in a squad room is like that show, you know. They make it more comical, but being a detective, and I didn't want to go. When I left narcotics, you know, I had friends that I grew up with that were already, you know, bosses, and they'd say, like, you know, where do you want to go? I didn't even know what OSID was. I didn't know anything. They said, all I want to do is go back to a precinct. And I worked in three different squads, and... Being a squad detective, I, I learned that if you were a squad detective, um, you learned everything from harassments to homicides. So you could be working by yourself. You know, there were plenty of times where you'd be working alone, you know, nobody, for whatever reason. And there's really nothing that you could not handle. You know, you knew really what to do. And you know, Tommy, let me just interject something. If you didn't learn investigation in a numbered squad, you weren't going to be as good an investigator as the guys that did come up that I mean, way. I'm not putting anybody down. No, I will put some people down because there were units coming out of one PP that couldn't find a bad guy in Rikers Island with the help uh, of the warden. And they would come into the homicide squad <laughs> and then they would be like, who are these guys? And you know, you know they had the name Major. They had the name Major in front of their name. I, and I was like, I mean, these guys did, couldn't shine my guy's shoes. I did three and a half years in narcotics, and I spent eight years in, in, in numbered squads before I didn't want to, before I got surprised and got sent to Intel and begged to get out of there. And, you know, um, Intel, I explained to the bosses who were there, and that basically what they just wanted us to do at the beginning was go to these, you know, major crime precincts that you know something bad happened and get their 49s and get copies of fives and i remember what it was like being in a squad room and you had someone come up there from like one pp and they want everything that i worked you know 50 hours on and i'd look at them like you know you fucking kidding me or what you know? lost you the know, chief the there. chief needs so, to know the chief you know, that walked into a squad room and guys were like, you know, get this asshole out of here. And Intel probably thought I was there from City Hall, you know, in uniform and worked my way up. I used to have to call at six o'clock in the morning to, to the chief of D's and tell him what we had on a murder overnight. And one time I called and I said, this is Sergeant Cannon from Manhattan North Homicide Squad. We're on this case, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, what do you got on it? I go, nothing. He goes, oh, the chief's going to be mad. I go, what? are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Like this little bucket tells me, oh, the chief's not going to be happy about that. I go, I don't really give a shit what he's happy about. I mean, it is it what so it is, dude. I, you know? I remember we had, we had a homicide. Um, it was me and Nikki and Tony Solano um, and Mike Galletta, I believe. 
me, I, I believe it was the four, I believe it was the four of us. And uh, we, we come in on a day tour and at six in the morning, they find the guy who belonged to a motorcycle gang on 60th Street and First Avenue with a bullet in the back of his head with his color still on his back, no ID, no nothing, whatever. And uh, we call the gang unit, we call people up. Nobody ever heard of this motorcycle gang, you know? So the homicide squad was with us. Was that the Shadrules? <laughs> no, that is, that is, that is, <laughs> I don't even remember. And I remember us, you know, we had nothing. The Brooklyn Shadrules. <laughs> the nothing. Brooklyn Shadrules. <laughs> homicide squad came down and they were with us. And it was like, I don't know, like maybe eight o'clock at night and they said all right you know we ain't getting away tonight we'll see you tomorrow tony solano was like you ain't going home we're gonna we're gonna find this and uh the, me and nikki go to the hell's angels motorcycle club on third street first third and avenue b nikki trafficenti gotta give yeah, him let go. another another beast of a guy great guy and uh we just took a picture of the colors of the of the guys uh you know motorcycle gang and there were some intimidating guys in front of that place. They didn't like the idea that we were walking in there. Me and Nikki just walked right in, you know? And we told them that we were just looking to notify the family, you know, to give closure to them that their, a loved one died. Could you tell us where this motorcycle gang hangs out? Going to the corner from where they hang out, we end up going to an apartment, the first apartment in Alphabet City, Two of the three guys that were seen in the murder were in that apartment and tell us that they weren't the shooters. Boom. They come with us, separate rooms, all night long, getting this, you know, making sure that their stories match to the T. They did. Turns out the guy who shoots them is a transit worker in the tunnel, like at 3.30, 4 in the morning, working in the tunnels. So we had transit authorities shut down all the power, stop the trains, and me and Nikki in suits are walking through the tunnel. <laughs> and this guy couldn't believe it. Like less than 24 hours from a John Doe, we had him in handcuffs. And I mean, those were great, great, great times. There were a lot That's of a great story. That's a great story. And there's no, there's no feeling like it. I said this last night on Jimmy Calandra's show. There's no feeling like it when you're standing over a dead body with a notebook in your hand and there's nothing in the notebook because you just got there. And then hours later or whatever it is, a day or weeks, and then you either get the guy confessing or you put the guy in handcuffs based on evidence. It's the greatest feeling in the world for a detective. 100%. You know, guys, we didn't really want to go much over an hour, but we're going to do a part two to this deep dive into the Mafia Cops, Louis Polito and Steve Caracappa. Uh, we didn't want, we wanted to stay up into a certain year and then we would uh, we'd go on part two to the, to how they wound up uh, getting arrested. Six. What's that? that? It goes all the way to 2006. Well, we're going to do that on the next show, but I just don't want to go too long because our fans have to get to bed. Phil has to go to bed. He's got to stir the sauce for tomorrow. So, uh, <laughs> Phil, last words. Last words. Listen, I think, uh, Tommy, thank you so much for coming on. This thank story you. is just incredibly intriguing. I think we really got through a lot of the detail from them coming on the job. We kind of stopped around 1986. We'll pick up from there on the next one. Um, you know, uh, one other thing I wanted to say, Tommy, uh, Jimmy Calandra, I think that you turned his life around. He's doing great. We were on his show last night and I was bringing this up earlier today to Bill. Uh, a lot of these guys that you, you've, 
helped and turned their lives around. That saved the lives of people that had they continued in a life of crime. Uh, you know, Jimmy testified or these other guys that you worked with, other informants, they testified. They brought down a lot of people and it prevented a lot of murder and mayhem from going on. So there's something to be said about that. I think that we never really addressed that. Same thing with Sammy. I mean, listen, Sammy, we had him on the show. Uh, the government made the deal with him. But, you know, uh, him doing what he did, it saved a lot of lives. And I think that's something that really goes unnoticed. I just wanted to put that in there. Thanks again, Tommy, for coming on. Looking right. forward to the uh, to the part two. Again, everybody, if you go on our show, give us the thumbs up. Uh, we have some of the people from uh, Jimmy's show that, that joined over. Uh, thank you so much. And any of our listeners, go over to Jimmy's show. Give him the thumbs up. He's got a great audience. They really Absolutely. They really Tommy, do. Final, final words, Tommy. Um, again, thank you for having me on. It's always, you know, very enjoyable to talk old stories and to reminisce and put myself back in the day. You know, it's a lot of fun and I miss it with all my heart. And uh, you two guys are great. You know, you really are. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on, folks. Thank you so much for listening Patrick, tonight. Buddy. This is Police Off the Cuff. Have a safe night. We'll see you soon. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.